Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. All kinds of platforms are now carrying this, the biggest politics show in the world. Get your head around that. And if you knew the budget on which we do it, you'd laugh. I cry, but you would laugh. A million people watching a show from across the world That's us. You're one of them. That proves you are intelligent life. Is there intelligent life in space? And are they sending craft to bother us? We'll be talking about that. How will we identify that intelligent life? Well, we'll be talking to the Regius Professor of Chemistry from the University of Glasgow in my former parliamentary constituency. My first parliamentary constituency, where I would still have been if Tony Blair had not expelled me over the Iraq war and then abolished my constituency just in case. Something to which I may return if I've got time. But first, it would be churlish, and I am not a churl. Not to wish every happiness to the newly wedded Mr. and Mrs. Boris Johnson. They found love in a hopeless place. He was with somebody else. In fact, he was married to somebody else and with somebody else. She was with somebody else. But they found love. And those of us, like myself, who have found love know how precious and important that is. So I wish the couple all the best. I don't agree with hardly anything that they stand for, maybe one or two things, Uh, but I am not one of those who thinks that one should automatically hate those with whom one disagrees. If that were the case, a lot of the people watching this show wouldn't be watching it. And that is an important lesson. The purpose of this show is to be a university so that we can all learn from each other. I learn from your calls, from the things that you write to me, not from all of them, of course. And you learn, I hope, either to agree or disagree with what I stand for through this medium of the mother of all talk shows. Speaking of hate, there's a Labour MP or ex-Labour MP. In Scotland, they're almost all ex-Labour MPs. There's only one Labour MP in Scotland now. But when there were more than 50 of us, uh, there was one called Tom Harris. He was a Glasgow MP like me. He seems to think I hated him, though I never did. But since losing office, Tom has become something of a celebrated newspaper columnist. And he damned me with fake praise 
in his Daily Telegraph column just a day or two ago. If you're behind the paywall, you might be able to read it. If not, I'll summarize it. According to Tom, in a very well-written article, if I hadn't stood for what I actually do stand for, I would have been the leader of the Labour Party and a candidate, therefore, to be Prime Minister of Great Britain. Of course, he misses the point that if I did not stand for what I do stand for, I wouldn't be me. He doesn't go into details about the offensive, his word, things that I do stand for that have stopped me becoming the leader of the Labour Party, so I'll do it for him. He means, I presume, the vehemence with which I opposed the war in Iraq, a war which every sentient being on the planet, and I'm sure anybody that is sentient on any other planet, already now knows was a complete and unmitigated disaster. Unmitigated disaster. Everybody on this planet with two brain cells, two rubbed together, already knows that I was right about the invasion and occupation of Iraq. And Tony Blair, about whom more later, was wrong. Although wrong would be to put it very kindly indeed. Everything I said about the Iraq war turned out to be true and everything that Tony Blair and George Bush said about the Iraq war turned out to be false, except where it was a deliberate falsehood, a lie. And we all know what I'm talking about. I could do no other than oppose the Iraq war because I knew that they were lying. I could do no other than to oppose the Iraq war because I knew that it would end in the catastrophic swamp of blood and death and suffering that it has ended in. What kind of person would I be if knowing these things I had kept stum? Well, one of the things I might be, according to Big Tom, is the leader of the Labour Party. But what would be the point of being the leader of the Labour Party if one had deliberately sublimated that which they knew to be true in the interests of opportunism? Understand this, Tom, and others. I don't say and do what I do to be popular. I don't say and do what I do in the hope that it will be profitable. I say and do what I do because I believe it to be right. And of course I paid a price for that, though not the price they expected me to pay. When Tony Blair expelled me from the Labour Party in 2005, he thought he would never see my face again, never hear my voice again. But actually, he's had to look at my face more since he expelled me than he ever did before he did so. He's had to listen to me. I promised them from the steps of the place where I was being expelled in King's Cross 
that he would rue the day. The Labour Party would rue the day that they expelled me over the Iraq war. And I've made them rue it twice already, capturing two rock-solid Labour parliamentary constituencies, and I intend to do so again. Not because I need a job. I've got more jobs than I can handle now. Not because I need the money. I'm in no need of money. But because I am determined that the things I stand for, opposition to imperialist war, the grand larceny of the country that used to be called Palestine and the suffering of its millions of citizens scattered to the four corners of the earth. It's just as well they can't put them in a spaceship and send them to another world because if they could, they would. I cannot remain silent about these things because I believe them. And I'm one of these strange political beasts that does things because they believe them. And guess what? Millions of other people believe them also. Millions of us marched against the war in Iraq. Millions of us are marching now in defense of the Palestinian people in Gaza. And when the attention shifts, as it will, as I've long promised you, to Jerusalem itself, to the repeated invasion of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, one of the holiest of shrines in Islam, just yards from the church of the Holy Sepulchre where Jesus was laid. Trust me, there will be tens, if not hundreds of millions on the march, on the move. Now Netanyahu has just fallen and you're just about to find out as Gideon Levy, the greatest living Israeli, told you on this show just a couple of weeks ago, the problem was not Netanyahu. As a matter of fact, the two people who are about to take over from Netanyahu are even worse than him. Worse than Netanyahu. Imagine. Who could imagine? But we're about to find out that what I'm saying is true. It wasn't Netanyahu that designed the catastrophe that the Palestinian people have been suffering for more than a hundred years now, living under occupation since 1948, since 1967, living as refugees since 1948, since 1967, since 1970, when they were driven out of Jordan. People that I know, people that I love, that live in the most rancid misery. Don't expect me to forget them. Don't expect me to turn my back on them. I'm not that kind of man. I will never turn my back on people that I have promised, promised to their face, eye to eye, that I will use every breath that God gives me 
to try to come to their side. And I shall continue to do so on all platforms, on radio, on television, in print, in parliament, on streets, in squares, through loud hailers or microphones, or through this camera reaching more than a million viewers, just on this show alone. Now we'll be talking in the course of tonight to the live wire, Patrick Christie, about how unbelievably with one bound, Boris Johnson was free. If you were watching Dominic Cummings, whom the liberal media had told us just a year ago was possibly Mephistopheles himself, Beelzebub, Dominic Cummings, the liar, has been transformed into a liberal icon because he has turned big time against his former friend and boss, Boris Johnson. Well, comfortably, I sit, being against Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson, not in the last year, but always, in every year. I can say that when I listened to Cummings talking, I think it was for 10 hours, I thought that Boris Johnson might be in serious trouble. And here we are on Sunday and no one is even talking about it. Like the wallpaper gate that went before it, it's an attack that has failed. The Conservative Party is now ahead in the public opinion polls for the 85th poll in a row. And here is one of the most salient features of those opinion polls. More than twice as many working class people are placing their trust in Boris Johnson than in the Labour leader Keir Starmer. I've been saying here for months, long before there was a by-election in which I would be a candidate, that Keir Starmer is quite the worst leader of an opposition that I have ever seen. And I saw Ian Duncan Smith. I saw Michael Howard. I've seen terrible opposition leaders, but I've never seen one as bad as Keir Starmer. He's so wooden, the birds are trying to nest in him. So wooden, people are hammering in nails to him. And I tell you what, he can't take much more. He can't take much more in terms of by-election defeats, catastrophic public opinion poll ratings. He can't take much more. When a leader is being caught in a pincer movement from the Blairites on the right to the Corbynites on the left, he is not much longer for the leadership of the Labour Party. And I'm going to make a bold prediction to you. 
Keir Starmer will spend his summer holidays on a beach reflecting that he is now the ex-leader of the Labour Party, the ex-leader of the opposition. And I hope to play some part in bringing that about. Who the Labour Party puts in his place might not be any more politically acceptable to me. Just like Naftali Bennett, who's now about to take the place of Netanyahu. Just because I'm against one doesn't mean I'm for the other. I'll probably not be for the next Labour leader either. But Britain needs an opposition. Parliament needs an opposition. Democracy cannot operate when the opposition is struck, deaf, dumb and blind, represents nothing and nobody, is a cipher rather than an opposition. British democracy cannot afford that. And that's why, for Britain, I say, Keir Starmer must go. Let's play a game and I'll ask you yes or no questions. Ready? Okay then. Sick and tired of hearing the same old voices on the wireless? Are you looking for an alternative opinion to the mainstream media? Do you have a thing for a Scottish accent? If your answer is no to one or more of these questions, then you need the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. Listen! Watch and share the fastest growing political program in the world. Uh, my colleague uh, on RT America, Caleb Mopan, is one of the smartest political operators on the continent. Uh, and I wanted to talk to him tonight about US media and US politics. And I'm glad to say he agreed. Uh, Caleb, thank you for joining us as uh, always. Let's start with uh, your president. Uh, where is he at the moment? Does he know he's there? And what is he up to? Indeed, people are looking at Joe Biden, uh, and especially as he seems to get a little tired in the summer heat and wondering exactly what's going on. He's got an infrastructure plan that is subject to constant negotiation. There does not seem to be even a clear consensus within his own party about what it will and will not include. A lot of chaos. Uh, we've got the Vice President Kamala Harris uh, making some woke jokes uh, before U.S. Navy graduates that aren't exactly going over and many criticizing her tweets around Memorial Day. Uh, this is a situation where the country is still in ruins following the pandemic. We've got infrastructure falling apart. That was a problem long before the pandemic came along. Joe Biden gave us an optimistic joint address to Congress, but we're waiting to see some action. And now what's in his plan? Well, at this point, he wants to spend $6 trillion on all kinds of things that would include fixing up the roads of the country, securing the bridges of the country, power plants, uh, water treatment facilities. And the country is really in need of this. Uh, I don't know. If I was going to say that sounds all good news to me. 
Indeed, indeed. I mean, look, I mean, for, for the past several decades, the country has just been decaying. We have municipalities across the United States uh, that are in shambles. Uh, they are literally unpaving the roads. They actually have this machine they call a reclaimer that pulls up the asphalt, pulverizes it, and replaces a paved road with dirt road. I, I, cannot, I kid you not. And in a number of states throughout the United States, you have municipalities that are so bankrupt, they cannot afford to maintain paved roads, and we are unpaving our roads. You know, while in developing countries like, like, like China and Nicaragua, they are, they are paving new roads, uh, we in the United States, supposedly the richest country in the world, are unpaving our roads. I mean, we saw the disaster a few years back with the, the drinking water in Flint, Michigan. Uh, we've seen power plants that just collapse that happened in Texas. You know, the power grid just, just popped this summer and, 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 and left people throughout the state uh, with, without electricity and the freezing cold. Uh, you know, we have a big infrastructure problem. While our government has been so interested in investing in bombs and tanks and drones and weapons of mass destruction and military spending and military bases around the world, America has been left behind. And both, both previous presidents, Obama and Trump, both promised they were going to do something about it and didn't. So now we will see if Biden will actually do something about it. But this $6 trillion plan has got his own party divided. Uh, it's got the Republicans up in arms. Uh, they are talking about all kinds of compromises that will happen. I'm waiting to see what actually happens uh, with this plan. Now, uh, you mentioned Kamala Harris and her woke jokes. Uh, that sounds entirely in character to me. Uh, tell us about them and how it's gone down. Well, we have a situation where it seems pretty apparent uh, that the U.S. military, in particular the upper ranks, the U.S. military brass, and the White House are not on the same page about this kind of woke makeover for the United States. Uh, you know, a lot of the military brass are conservative folks, uh, Christian, evangelical. Uh, Christianity is very big among them. Uh, they are traditional. Uh, they certainly don't want their kids going to school and reading Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. But yet it seems like, in particular, the intelligence apparatus has argued that the United States needs a woke makeover. We need to show the world that we are the most anti-racist, the most pro-LGBT country in the world, that we go around liberating people from regimes that are too uptight and conservative. So while the intelligence apparatus and the media has decided we're going to have a woke makeover to, to make imperialism look hip, uh, at the same time, uh, we have a military brass uh, that doesn't see things that way and has a very different narrative of world events. Um, so Kamala Harris goes to, you know, speak to the Navy graduates uh, and her jokes just fall flat. And then, you know, we're heading, this is Memorial Day weekend. Tomorrow is Memorial Day, the day we commemorate those who died in wars. Uh, and, you know, we have Kamala Harris tweeting out, uh, instead of, you know, instead of honoring Memorial Day, we have her tweeting out, uh, enjoy the long weekend. Uh, uh, you know, and people are seeing that as a subtle dig at the military. Look, there's long been a division within the U.S. structure and government apparatus between the military-industrial complex, which is a huge part of the U.S. economy, 
and you know the far folks that come out of Harvard and Yale and the intelligence apparatus, the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, that that strategically plan out how to market the United States around the world and covertly push soft power. And those two wings of the American apparatus, the American government, the American deep state, if you want to use those terms, uh, they have long been at odds. There's been a lot right, written about that, about you know the Anglo-American establishment, etc. Um, and we're seeing these differences play out. And the fact that Kamala Harris didn't go over so well with the Navy graduates is just yet another incident in this long, long-standing disagreement beneath the surface. Now, when history, uh, the history of this recent period, comes to be written, one of the most bizarre of many bizarre episodes will be the extent to which so many people in America came to believe uh, that Donald Trump was somehow an agent of Russia. This despite the fact that Donald Trump caused more trouble for Russia than virtually any other president, Im imposed more sanctions, uh, threatened Germany uh, with the condign punishment for having the temerity in its own interest to have a pipeline uh, for its gas supply from Russia and so on, the, the Nord Stream to project. In fact, Trump was wildly anti-Russian in his actions, and he was mercilessly flayed by the democratic establishment as uh, such in politics and in the media, perhaps even especially in the media. How are they handling the fact uh, that uh, Joe Biden has now ended the threat of sanctions on the Nord Stream and will shortly meet uh, the aforementioned Vladimir Putin. Well, this points to kind of a long-standing irony in American politics. Look, Richard Nixon, he went and met with Mao in China. And why did Nixon, the conservative, the right-winger who took power on a platform of, you know, going after the black liberation struggle and opposing the peace movement, why is it that he's the one that met with Mao? It's because no Democrat would ever get away with such a thing. A Democrat would have been called a communist and a traitor for meeting with Mao. So Nixon, a conservative Republican whose right-wing and anti-communist credentials were, were very high, he was able to do it. And you can see that parallel. Donald Trump took office being accused of being, you know, quote-unquote, Putin's puppet, Russiagate hysteria. So on that basis, we saw Trump constantly trying to prove trying to prove how anti-Russian he was, ripping up nuclear treaties. I mean, very dangerous. You can talk about the, you know, the short-range treaty and, and the various agreements, nuclear agreements that, that he ripped up. You can talk about the attack on Germany and Nord Stream 2. Um, you know, the, the Trump administration was constantly on the defensive when it came to anything related to Russia. Meanwhile, Biden took office accusing Donald Trump of being, you know, being soft on Russia, of, you know, saying all kinds of nasty things about about Russia. And now Biden is in office and we're seeing suddenly the nuclear treaties are not being allowed to expire. Um, you know, we're seeing the possibility of, of a, you know, there's going to be a summit soon between the two leaders, between Putin and Biden. Um, and it seems like because Biden is not on the defensive, that gives him a little bit more of a free hand to possibly negotiate and improve relations. And this is the longstanding irony of American politics. Uh, you know, people do the opposite of what they are accused of doing.
I, I, I genuinely don't want to be too disrespectful to your president, but many people in your country and elsewhere, I think, will be skeptical as to what extent President Biden is capable of having a proper summit uh, with Vladimir Putin. I mean, it's the greatest uh, mismatch since Rocky Marciano fought Jack Bodell, isn't it? Indeed, indeed. Uh, you know, uh, Biden is tripping over his words and seems a little bit tired. And everyone knows that Russian President Vladimir Putin is a smooth actor. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't miss a word. Everything is very careful and sharp and to the point. So it'll be certainly a, a contrast in styles and approaches uh, when the two of them are standing next to each other. Well, so was Rocky Marciano versus Jack Bodell and it ended with Jack Horizontal. Caleb Mopan, thank you, as always, for a wonderful tour of the horizon in the United States politics. Thank you for joining me. Comrade, tired of being trapped in mainstream media? Join the revolution with mother of all talk shows. Has been instrumental in making brain and heart of people stronger like kettlebell for mind. Don't be brainwashed, CC, an open mind to new way of thinking. If you don't know how, George will teach you. If you won't learn, he will make you. (laughs) Speak to Comrade Galloway if you think you're hard enough on the mother of all talk shows. Darren Stanton otherwise known as the human lie detector, is Britain's leading body language expert. Darren began his UK television and media career back in 2010 when he was asked to assess the politicians during the TV live debate for the general election. Prior to this, Darren spent his days investigating and dealing with liars, cheats and criminals as a house of no, as a police officer. Since then, Darren has been a regular on our TV screens and on radio, with appearances on some of Britain's biggest shows, including my own shows, Sputnik and the mother of all talk shows. Now, Darren is going to join me now to talk about Dominic Cummings. Darren, you must have watched because the whole country was watching. You must have watched, if not all, then parts of Dominic Cummings' epic parliamentary performance this week. What did you think of his performance? What did his body language say to you? Yeah, I watched it, obviously, quite a lot lot of times. Um, It was fascinating because we saw a total reversal. We saw a total change from when we saw the the famous Rose Garden press conference. Um, a year ago, yes. Yes. What a difference so think, a year can make. Then he was a demon. Now he's the, uh, he's the hero of the liberal classes. It's just intrigued me how somebody, suddenly everyone's done a U-turn now, or appears to have done a U-turn, and said that, you know, he's now this paragon of virtue that's come out and, and been totally honest and stuff. But there's, I mean, again, going back to last year, there was lots of things that, you know, I wasn't happy about in terms of the way he conveyed it. But 
Um, for the for the launch part um, of this press conference um, last week, we we saw a lot of gestures which were consistent with with him being sort of being honest. Now, there's two schools of thought on this. Either he's convinced himself of what the truth is, in which case the body follows what we believe, or indeed, you know, he's been completely truthful. But it's a bit of been fascinating to see the change in terms of how he conveys himself. Tell, tell us what he did, what he manifested that made you think he might very well be telling the truth. Well, when someone's being basically afraid of being discovered in quite a, a, you know, a big lie, the biggest fear is the consequence and what people tend to do, no matter how well they're trained. And again, as you know, I've, I've assessed some of the biggest um, celebrities and, and politicians, um, you know, that we know. And last year, um, it was very, very... Um, unanimated so he was almost withdrawn into himself in terms of his posture he wasn't making many hand gestures um his blink rate was 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 kind of double or triple which are all what i call red flags now with the press conference last week we saw lots of what we call open palm gesture which psychologically saying you know i, I have no weapons it's almost like saying i'm being truthful his blink rate didn't spike on certain parts of where I would have expected it to, to, to do so. Um, in terms of the way that he conveyed himself verbally, um, people tend to have quite a high pitch or their voice cracks um, from the anxiety. And, you know, I didn't pick up too much of that with him. So, again, he's either convinced himself of a, of a, of a backstory to such a high degree that he believes it now or he's being truthful. He spoke for such a long time. I mean, even I would struggle with a 10-hour uh, um, uh, uh, parliamentary statement. It was a committee that was uh, grilling him. Uh, did he seem confident in what he was saying? Did he f seem at all fearful? Yes, a great question, George. And there's a number of key things that I, I picked up on. And, and again, you know, if many of us imagine, you know, seven hours, it's, it's a bit of an ordeal. But he, he was consistent in his behaviour um, throughout that period. But there are a couple of interesting things that he tended to make the gesture where he put his, put his hands on his head at certain times. And that's what we call a self-reassurance gesture, like a self-hug. What do you so mean, what do you mean uh, on his head? On top of his head or behind? On top of his head, yeah. You know, sometimes they might see a child or somebody might do it in frustration yeah. where they put their hands on the head. Yeah. Now, he did that at a number of significant points where... He, rec you know, he realised that what he was saying was going to be quite damning for, for, the, for the PM and, and Hancock. You know, so obviously when he said about the lies, if people watch that back, you know, he makes a, 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 quite a number of these gestures where he self-touches his, his face and his head. Um, and another and, thing and did, did you find that convincing? I did, to be fair, because that's not a gesture that he's made before. Although we've not seen him give a lot of, you know, a lot of press conferences... Um, he's not made that gesture before. So, for example, anything that's new or different or something that someone uh, not, 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 doesn't normally do, that, that flags up to me. So that did seem quite convincing, the fact that he realised the kind of importance and the impact of what he was saying. Well, I mean, on the face of it, it could scarcely have been more important. He was effectively accusing uh, his former boss, the Prime Minister of Britain, of having caused the deaths of thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people, unnecessarily. Uh, now, that is verging on an allegation of criminal negligence. 
Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think when he was asked the question, I think it was really Jeremy Hunt that asked the question um, about, you know, are, are you not sort of, I can't remember the, the, the phrase he used, but essentially he was asking um, Cubbins, you know, are you not sort of disgusted almost that you didn't pull the ripcord long before that? And he, you know, he pretty much said, yes, I am. Um, and then when he when he was also pushed on, you know, have you got any evidence that you've said that Matt Hancock has been lying? He said, yeah, you know, I've got I've got WhatsApp messages, I've got I've got emails available. I'll make that available to the committee. So that would have been a key point at which I would have expected someone that's been less than honest to have, have began to stutter or to begin to uh, show it. Yes, but he didn't. He was it was it was cool as a cucumber to be honest, George. Now, uh, what about the uh, moment where he apologised for his own shortcomings, uh, if you'll forgive the pun? Uh, he wasn't uh, able to, it would have been scarcely credible, considering how central he was to the government's coronavirus response. He didn't spare himself in the criticism, did he? Was that persuasive? I think it was. I mean, he's, he made no attempts to sort of deflect any of the questions or, like you say, to distance. Because normally what I find when I assess politicians is they will distance themselves. Um, they will tend to use phraseology like, yes, you know, well, those people or when that happened, they'll, they'll sort of create this disassociation as if it's a separate issue. So, for example, the famous expression with Clinton, you know, I didn't have relations with that woman, even though we knew, you know, the truth. So we didn't see any of that sort of language or behaviour. Depends what you mean by relations, doesn't it? He was relying on uh, a very uh, rather uh, arcane and obscure point about what relations would constitute. Um, not that Cummings would be involved in any of that stuff. Did he flag in any way? Did he keep it up right to the end? So another key thing which I thought was interesting was when he was quizzed about the whole debacle about going up to Durham. Um, I mean, you know far better than me in terms of what security would have been available for him had there been credible threats. But I think that was, he wasn't giving us the whole story on that because we see what we call, it's almost like a reverse horseshoe. So if you imagine sort of like you're, you make an expression of indifference almost, but it's like an upside down horseshoe with your mouth. Um, and that is, that is um, not a deceptive tell, but it's something that kind of flags to me that maybe he couldn't give the whole truth, but he was. I think he was certainly holding something back. I don't think we've been told the full story on the whole situation with regards to, to breaking the coronal rules. He could, of course, be a psychopathic liar, uh, and this could, of course, all be about the fact that he fell out of love with Boris Johnson or Boris fell out of love with him, did you see any signs that that might be the explanation? <laughs> I didn't see any signs that he's, he's got sort of sociopathic or psychopathic tendencies, but, you know, you, you're quite right. I mean, the, the people that tend to be able to beat these, these kind of analysis and polygraph, as you know, are people with personality disorders um, and people with psychopathic sort of tendencies that, that can convince themselves of whatever reality they like and indeed they will they will come over completely credible so so yeah you know so. well you see i ask because that's exactly what he was being described as just a year ago by in many cases the very same correspondents that are now behaving as if he has brought down 
on tablets of stone from the mount uh, the whole and unvarnished uh, truth. I'm thinking of the Sky News uh, lady, Beth Rigby, uh, who was Cummings' chief persecutor a year ago. And you remember those scenes outside his house? They were treating him as if he was a criminal. Indeed, they were treating him as a criminal just a year ago. And now everything has completely transformed. So I suppose it's not really your place to answer, but if you've got an answer, I'd love to hear it. Which was the real Dominic Cummings? Last year's model or this year's model? It's, it's really interesting you bring up that journalist because I know she's she's been quite forthright. And, and again, I looked at all the daily briefings throughout the whole year. Um, you know, interestingly at the time, no one would take my analysis because you know, there was quite a lot of things that were flagging up during the daily briefings. But um, my personal gut instinct, George, is that last year is the true Cummings, is, if, if you want my honest opinion. Okay, uh, so no stammering, the reverse horseshoe, the blink rate, the hands on the head. It sounds like a bravura performance. I suppose the acid test is, was it a performance or was it the real deal? Was it the real thing? I thought when I read and heard the headlines uh, that he had put Boris Johnson in a very, very difficult place. But it's only Sunday and Boris is celebrating his nuptials and everyone's forgotten about Dominic Cummings. Uh, I wonder if this was a good day for Boris to bury that bad news. Do you know what? Honestly, that, that is exactly... I've, 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 I was interviewed a few other times yesterday and I, I kind of said the same thing. It, was, it just seems quite strategic. I don't know in a way, because I'm, I'm an old cynic. So I think it seems a bit strategic that all of these things have happened in the space of a few days. And like you say, it, it does seem a good day to bury about news, doesn't it? And it's buried. I mean, if that was the intention, uh, it's worked. They say that Boris is a fool, but he's the wisest fool in Christendom. Thanks, uh, Darren Stanton, the human lie detector. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Now Patrick, welcome back to the show. I'm sorry we're socially distant tonight. I know that you have many important uh, uh, things that you have to do this week, so I'm glad you could fit me in at all. Uh, the aliens are keeping their distance from us because life on Earth is just too weird. And it was a pretty weird week, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a pretty weird week. Although having seen Dominic Cohen's testimony, I did wonder whether or not aliens were indeed amongst us, actually, George, for a, a period of time there. Uh, Dominic Cummings, of course, uh, went nuclear, didn't he, really? And I thought that was quite extraordinary, making a series of uh, quite serious allegations. The big question mark is going to be whether or not, of course, any of it's really true and how much we believe a man who sat in the Rose Garden and lied to us so easily and comfortably uh, in relation to Barnard Castle and testing his eyesight. I spoke to Conservative MP Andrew Bridgen yesterday, who told me he described Dominic Cummings as the kind of man who would go on your stag do and then run breathlessly to your fiance and tell her all the gory details. Uh, so I thought that kind of uh, sums up what Dominic Cummings' view is like uh, in, the, in the House of Parliament now and amongst 
Conservative MPs. But as I'm sure we'll get stuck into, yep, several pretty fruity allegations that Matt Hancock should have been sacked 15 to 20 times, especially over. I think a lot of people. Images. I think a lot of people might agree with that one. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's an element of this that I can believe, that Matt Hancock is not quite up to the task. That said, being health minister in a time of a pandemic is no uh, easy task uh, anywhere. But um, the notion is, the notion is, according to Dominic Cummings, that Matt Hancock actually was fundamentally dishonest. And Matt Hancock denies this, was that Matt Hancock was fundamentally dishonest when it came to people being sent back into care homes and, the, and what he knew vis-a-vis them essentially not being given coronavirus tests or having had a coronavirus test and testing positive, still being sent back into care homes. Of course, coronavirus ripped through care homes at the start of this pandemic. And was that on our health secretary? That's the question. Um, the other element to Dominic Cummings' uh, uh, diatribe, I suppose, is that Boris is, is not up to the task and that he didn't take coronavirus seriously even after he had the virus. Now, that I can believe to an extent, but I think what really kind of was the takeaway from me was that Boris Johnson clearly, clearly, clearly was so reluctant to want to enforce all of these lockdowns, or at least that's the message that's coming out. And it's no surprise, George, that Boris Johnson, in the immediate aftermath of Dominic Cummings' statement there, went up six points in the polls. Yes, very interesting. Uh, and uh, to, uh, I think we can say it might come back to haunt him, uh, but I think we can say he's home free from the Dominic Cummings uh, offensive. Uh, which is quite peculiar in a way, given, uh, and perhaps that's the explanation, given how one note the media have been about Cummings' performance, almost one note, uh, certainly amongst the liberal Chatterati, the BBC and so on. It was as if Cummings had come down from the mount with the truth uh, chiseled into stone. And yet uh, Johnson's gone up, not down in the opinion polls. Yeah, this is it. And I think the idea now, you can remember back to a time, essentially, I suppose this time last year, really, where we were being told that Dominic Cummings was in charge, Boris was in his pocket, Boris was just a puppet, a poodle, as it were, and that actually Dominic Cummings was running the country. Well, now we're being told, why didn't Boris Johnson just do what Dominic Cummings told him to do? And you can't have that both ways. One of, only one of those things can be right. And the media needs to make its mind up there as to which one of those it believes to be true. Boris Johnson's base, I suppose, and indeed a lot of people now, I think, I'm fair enough for me to say this really around the country, are, are, are sick and tired of lockdowns. Uh, and the notion that Boris Johnson was potentially one of the only people who was quite, quite reluctant to thrust us into a never-ending cycle of lockdowns actually did him quite a lot of good with his base. And um, I thought Dominic Cummings let himself down slightly and showed potentially his true colours in the way that he spoke about Carrie, Boris Johnson's now wife, of course. Where did that come from? Uh, but um, he refused to call her by name and he refused to call her Boris Johnson's fiance. Instead, he kept referring her to her rather disdainfully as Boris's girlfriend, which I thought was a bit of a slight there and kind of showed his true colours in that respect and did tell that quite, quite, quite funny story. To be yes, uh, it, was, uh, uh, it was a tad uh, uh, mean uh, to do that. Yeah. Uh, especially as they have a child together and they yeah. live in Downing Street together, which yeah. is pretty groundbreaking, even in my lifetime. The yeah. idea that someone could live uh, in Downing Street with their then girlfriend mm. is quite uh, extraordinary. Now, you correctly identified uh, that Dominic Cummings, if, if, if aliens are amongst us, <laughs> they might look like him. He is a very Martian-looking fellow. Uh, with a Martian brain, they say. Uh, is he finished now, 
or does he have more in his locker? Well, he's finished potentially in more ways than one. I don't think he's finished talking. I'm not sure he will ever be finished talking. I'm not sure he'll ever be finished tweeting. However, I think he'd have to be for another planet to follow some of his Twitter threads. I would urge everyone now, or so at some point after your show, George, to go and just try to follow what Dominic Cummings is going on about on his own Twitter page. It's incredibly difficult to do. I think he might be finished, in a sense, professionally. It's a brave man that employs Dominic Cummings now. A man who thinks... No, for, for no second whatsoever about going absolutely nuclear and revealing essentially all the state secrets, we're going to say, what would he do if he was just head of a think tank? You know, you don't want to be in those HR meetings with Cummings, do you? So I can imagine that being very difficult for him. Look, it's whether or not I suppose he wants to end up doing the rounds and go on things like, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. I suspect he'll write a book. And I do suspect as well that there'll be potential for him going forward. He kept his options open. He had his eye on the next man, Rishi Sunak, and on Michael Gove, because he's previously worked for Michael Gove. And he was actually quite complimentary about those people. And so I do wonder whether or not he wonders if he can have a route back into power, essentially, and work back into uh, Downing Street with those two. But like I said, I think it's a brave man who, who, who gives him a job, personally. Now, were you at the wedding? The secret wedding? <laughs> were you invited? No, not, at not at all. No, not Where at all. Where did that come from? The, it was a masterstroke of uh, secrecy. Uh, the media uh, didn't get uh, wind of it and uh, everyone had been led to believe yeah. that for some reason they were waiting till next year. Well, actually, there's quite an interesting uh, understory, as it were, running along this. This is, of course, Carrie Simons, Carrie Johnson, as she is now known, uh, used to be uh, in a relationship with Harry Cole, who was the editor of uh, was the political editor at, uh, at The Sun. And that story about the wedding taking place in a, in a year or two's time came out via... Harry Cole. And so whether or not there's been some deliberate underhand, a man who has now, of course, now had to report on his own uh, ex's marriage to the Prime Minister uh, and also simultaneously getting his story wrong, was probably not, probably not a great day out for old Harry, who is normally uh, relatively on the mark with things. And um, so, yeah, they did keep it, they did keep it incredibly quiet, uh, a supposedly intimate ceremony, but it has caused a lot of controversy, hasn't it? How can a man twice divorced be married in a Catholic church, George, you know? And so apparently the why I'm hearing is that they but my understanding is that the Catholic Church has decided not to recognise his previous marriages, which I think is quite convenient, isn't it? Yes, but uh, the real reason is because for the first time in our history, because, of course, we've only had prime ministers uh, for mm. a couple of centuries, uh, two and a half, um, we've got a Catholic prime minister. Yeah. That's something uh, that we never thought we might see in the uh, in this period. I didn't realise he was Catholic. I've got to be honest with you. I, I just didn't. I didn't. And I'm assuming as well he might be able to, uh, to to claim some kind of Greek Orthodox lineage or something even like that as well with his with his family history. But, uh, uh, but yeah, yeah, no. Or Turkish. Uh, he was a Turkish. Catholic. He was a Catholic at school, and mm -hmm. then he defected. Is quite uh, how shall I say promiscuous, <laughs> Boris Johnson, in religious matters and others. Uh, he became an Anglican, and then when he met Carrie, who is a Catholic, he converted back again. And the church has forgiven that uh, promiscuity and other things, uh, precisely because we now, Britain has, in 2021, a Catholic prime minister. When the U.S. had its first Catholic president in 1960, 61 years ago, uh, has that caused any frisson in conservative circles? 
So, so well, I, I spoke to Peter Bone earlier today, actually, and he was just quite confused. Now, what I do find very interesting is there's two different noises coming out amongst Conservative MPs. There's what you're getting on Twitter and what you're getting online, which is warm wishes. We wish them well. We're so delighted for you. What a fabulous couple. Nothing is ever going to go wrong here. And then you have behind the scenes, which is actually people already sniffling a little bit and saying, there's no way this is going to last. How, how come they've ended up in this situation? Is it a case where Boris has maybe been a little bit of a silly boy and perhaps has got himself into a situation where it's really the right thing for the country and for the dignity of his office, if you could call it that, that actually he should be in a what committed marriage, essentially, with, with an individual. Um, so that seems to be the, the two different mood musics among Conservative MPs. The actual Catholicism element to it, I've certainly not heard anything um, uh, along those lines, apart from just genuine confusion as to how he was able to actually get married in a Catholic church, yeah. It's just, if you look at uh, Joshua Rosenberg's legal blog, uh, you'll see a long list of things uh, that the Prime Minister will not now be legally able to do, like nominating bishops and so on, uh, and many other things, because British law still forbids Roman Catholics uh, from doing these things, having these powers, uh, like being in the royal family, for example. Mm. If you're a Catholic marrying into the royal family, uh, if you were of a mind, uh, you'd probably be best advised not to, but... If you were, you would have to relinquish your faith in order to do so. So it is uh, a bit of a historic uh, event. Oh, absolutely. You know, it is, it is definitely a historic event. I like the idea now that Boris, who's probably had a little bit too much on his plate for quite a while, could hide behind the Catholicism excuse now to essentially do a bit less work. I do wonder uh, if, if that was on his mind at all. But no, I think it's, um, I think it's, it's, it's definitely historic in that sense. And it's also, I think, just probably the right thing for the country and for Boris Johnson to have actually done. Um, I, I think the, the question marks are just over... Um, really, I don't think that Carrie is particularly popular behind the scenes. She isn't really particularly popular behind the scenes uh, amongst staff in Downing Street and amongst fellow Conservative MPs. For some reason, whether or not this is unfair, it may well be unfair, she is treated with, with an element of scepticism. She's seen as uh, wanting to adopt causes that are not regarded as being particularly positive amongst the Conservative base, environmentalism being one of those. And there are concerns about how much of Boris's ear she has, for want of a better phrase, you would imagine now, quite a lot. Uh, and so uh, there, are, there are concerns over that. And there are also are concerns coupled with that about whether or not Boris is fundamentally quite a weak man when it comes to women and whether or not she does have an undue influence over him. That said, I suppose any man is going to listen to his wife at some point, isn't he? So, uh, you, you know, you could argue that that's, uh, that that's reasonable. Um, so, yeah, there, are, there is some suspicion with Carrie. And I think as well, look, Dominic Cummings, I know we started talking about Cummings and it's, it's fitting that we should kind of come full circle in this sense, really, because he did... Uh, he did crown her Princess Nutner, which I think is, is incredibly derogatory, don't get me wrong, but then did reference in the, um, uh, in the inquest, in the inquiry that he was part of, a situation where we were about to announce that we were going to throw everyone into full lockdown. It was that day. Donald Trump wanted to join a bombing campaign in Iraq, and Carrie Simons got uh, the Downing Street press office to focus entirely pretty much on a story in The Times about whether or not she was going to give Dylan the dog away. And I think that does maybe show... Uh, where, where some issues could emerge behind the scenes vis-a-vis -vis Carrie and Boris. Well, we'll keep a close eye on it, uh, thanks to you. Uh, Patrick Christie's thanks for joining us on board the mother of all talk shows. There wasn't much sign of intelligent life in the Congress of the United States in 1957. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. But the Congress and indeed the former president of the United States, Barack Obama, are increasingly hinting, more than hinting, uh, that there is big news in their possession about the existence of unidentified flying objects. They haven't gone as far as to say that these objects were evidence of extraterrestrial life, but it's quite difficult to understand what they would be, if not that. You probably didn't know, I was sitting in Parliament for decades and not knowing, that the Ministry of Defence in Britain, as in the United States, had a UFO department. And the man that ran it was Nick Pope, who joins me now. Nick, welcome back to the mother of all talk shows. It's always a pleasure. The proximate reason uh, for asking you on now again is because Barack Obama seemed to indicate that he knew things he hasn't told us yet. Was that your impression? Yes, it was, absolutely. And he's not the only one. Uh, former Director of National Intelligence John Ratcliffe uh, talked about this and said that there was satellite imagery of UFOs and, and many, many more pilot sightings than have been made public. Uh, we have two former CIA directors, James Woolsey and John Brennan, talking about it. And now, of course, we're going to get this report. Think of it really as a proper intelligence assessment of the UFO phenomenon going from Director of National Intelligence to the Senate Intelligence Committee. Finally, they are waking up and treating this as the defense and national security issue. Those of us who've looked at it in government have always known it to be. Although if it had hostile intent, uh, it would be curtains, uh, wouldn't it? There's not much we could do about uh, uh, the presumably the military power uh, of an extraterrestrial force which had the superior technology uh, to be able to visit us at will. So we might as well raise the white flag. Yes, I don't think anyone's advocating getting into a shooting war here. And, and of course, we don't even really know for sure that this is extraterrestrial, though, interestingly, it's certainly not been ruled out. And, and there's certainly my understanding is that there's a faction within the US government that believes this to be extraterrestrial. But in the first instance, we need to, to find out 
you know, for sure what we're dealing with, because these things have been seen in close proximity to USS uh, Nimitz, for example, the USS Princeton. So a couple of aircraft carriers, several destroyers. We need to know, is it our own technology? Is it a foreign adversary? Or is it something else, possibly even something extraterrestrial? And that's what we hope we're going to get clarity on in the next month or so. Um, do these things ever visit Burundi uh, or, or Burkina Faso? Uh, or are they only found buzzing around American and British uh, naval assets? I ask because it is quite possible uh, that these are experimental weapons, either Western weapons or uh, weapons that are being developed by others, isn't it? Yes, it is. And that's very much one of the theories being looked at fairly hard here. Uh, secret prototype aircraft, missiles and drones. Interestingly, Senator Marco Rubio, who was acting chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, said, I would rather this is extraterrestrial than, say, Russia or China, because if that's the case, the United States has been left standing. Uh, but to answer your original question, we don't know because we, we don't get those reports. And that's one of the things. We think that UFOs are a global phenomenon, but we really only have good data where we have things like satellite coverage, where we have jets flying with forward-looking infrared cameras, where we have the space tracking radar systems uh, at the ballistic missile early warning centers, for example, looking. But it's a good question and one we need, need more clarity on, I think. What, uh, what kind of things are you hearing? Because your ear is very close to the ground on these matters. Uh, and you're currently, I think, in the United States. Uh, what sort of things do you think might be in these uh, reports? Well, what I'm hearing is, frankly, they're getting themselves into something of a mess over this and that there's a what you might call a skeptic versus believer dogfight raging at the heart of the US military intelligence community about what we're dealing with here, with factions struggling for control of the narrative here. I think what we are likely to get, and this report is due by late June, but I'm hearing leaks that it's likely to be delayed, that we'll get a holding report that, that, of course, there are, what is it, 18 different parts of the US intelligence community. The people doing this study and writing this report, their first challenge is, is to get FaceTime with the people in, in the know. What active programs are there in the intelligence community? What historical data? It's a big challenge. They've hit some roadblocks, so many roadblocks that the DOD has called in the office of the inspector general. Um, there have been complaints about this. There have been allegations of um, non-cooperation. It's, as I say, it's a mess. Now, what did President Obama say? I didn't see his lips move, so I've only read reports of it. What did he say that caused this, well, I think we can call it a shockwave? Well, he was asked in, in relation to all these recent sightings involving the US Navy and the upcoming report to Congress, what do you know? And he said, look, there are a lot of fairly far out rumors circulating about, you know, we've got crashed spaceships hidden away in hangars, things being studied in laboratories. He said he asked when he was president, but didn't 
didn't get any any sort of confirmation of that. But he said, yes, I am aware that we are seeing, whether it's visually from pilots or whether it's things like radar operators tracking them, he said, we are seeing these things in our airspace performing extraordinary speeds and maneuvers and accelerations and, and other things, and we don't know what we're dealing with. So he didn't go quite as far as to say that it's definitely extraterrestrial, but my goodness, it was a, a sort of heavy hint that it might be more than just aircraft lights and weather balloons. How hypersonic uh, are these uh, movements that have been seen? I mean, are they completely of a different dimension? Some of them are, but it's, it's on a spectrum. Some of the speeds are not, frankly, compared to our own, that remarkable, but others are, and, and there have been one or two fairly highly classified reports suggesting things which would almost imply a new physics. And um, what's, what's for sure, of course, is that what's been publicly released here is just the tip of the iceberg. And the US military intelligence community is sitting on data, some of it classified top secret, uh, that it absolutely, and perhaps understandably, is not sharing. And it's those data that would answer your question, because I think that's where the really um, insane sounding speeds and accelerations are, are recorded. Well, that takes us back to the Marco Rubio point, uh, that if something so hypersonic that it almost envisages a new physics is a weapon or a platform for a weapon in the hands of a country other than the United States, um, I expect the United States will be praying that it's men from Mars or further beyond. Yes, very much so. And uh, former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, who was instrumental in setting up an earlier Pentagon study into all this, wrote to the Deputy Defense Secretary in one of the few letters about this that has been released into the public domain and authenticated by the Pentagon. And he talked about, and I'm paraphrasing, but the catastrophic damage to the national interest of the United States if this technology, whatever it was, was in the hands of a foreign adversary. Extraordinary. Now, you did this uh, for a living. You're probably still doing it for a living, but not for the MOD. Uh, you did this in Britain. What were the most amazing things that crossed your desk when you were in Whitehall? Well, we received about two or 300 reports each year. And while most of them were misidentifications, we did have some which were quite extraordinary. And I remember a case from 1993 where we had a wave of sightings over the UK for a period of about six hours, huge triangular shaped craft flying directly over two military air bases, accelerating away uh, at a phenomenal speed from a virtual hover. And of course, and, and you'll appreciate this, George, or, or maybe not, uh, as the case may be, we routinely told Parliament, the media and the public that these things were of very little defence interest. But behind closed doors, some of us were seriously concerned. And that's why, I don't know if you saw, I think it was yesterday in The Telegraph, a senior defense source said it's time to reopen 
these Ministry of Defence investigations. And uh, he or she said, we're tracking what the US is doing now with this report. We'll keep an eye on what they say. And if we need to re-engage on this, obviously we'll do so. But absolutely, we want to know what's going on in our airspace. This is no longer a fringe topic or conspiracy theory. It's mainstream defense and national security issue. Now, I, I don't know if you do philosophical questions, but if you do, uh, let me try it. Uh, what does your gut tell you as a man that's worked in this field now uh, for so many years, decades, in fact? Do you think that some of this is extraterrestrial? I'm convinced there's life out there in the universe, and I think we're very close to, to finding it through a whole range of, of scientific means. Whether we're being visited or not, I'm not sure. I'd like to think so. I guess like Fox Mulder, I want to believe. Aliens would certainly be the most interesting of all the potential solutions to what we're dealing with here. And uh, yeah, if, if that's what we're dealing with, uh, as we often used to say at the MOD, the skeptics have to be right every time, but the believers only need to be right once. And we are in, if that's true, the most game-changing, paradigm-busting uh, situation imaginable. And I, I hope that's what we're dealing with. And I hope uh, you know, we'll get some answers on this sooner rather than later. Although, of course, this report going to Congress must be unclassified, but it can have a classified annex. So as ever, I'm afraid the media and the public might not get to see the good stuff. Unlike us, of course, so far, they've come in peace if they are they. Yes, I, and I, that's my fervent hope, is that they're coming here not as conquerors or exterminators, but as scientists, as biologists, as anthropologists, and uh, that they're fascinated by the biodiversity on, on this amazing planet on which we live and well, hoping perhaps that we don't blow ourselves up. I hope they enjoyed the Champions League final last night. That would have been worth watching even if you were in Mars. Thank you very much indeed, Nick Pope, as always, for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Fascinating subject, this. Have I got a call? Give it to me then. Wayne in Cheshire on UFOs. Wayne, it's welcome. A pleasure. It's a pleasure. Um, I've been researching this for 30, 30 plus years, the phenomena. Okay. Um, we need to... When you uh, say researching it, do you mean on the internet? Mostly, yeah. Okay. You've not studied at a oh. university or anything like that? Oh, no. Okay. No, because um, the information from the university wouldn't help you anyway. All right. Go ahead. Um, we need to uh, acclimatise the public uh, for the introduction of extraterrestrials because, come to the conclusion at this point, that we are at a crossroads of huma human history at the moment. We have technology to wipe out ourselves and the Earth itself, but we, we don't have the wisdom to control it. We need extraterrestrials to help guide us through this juncture. If they're going to come, they are going to come soon, because I believe inevitably we will kill ourselves either through nuclear, biological, 
or technical, technological means. I also believe this has happened many times over the millennia. I was going to ask you that. I mean, if they're here now, um, what's to say uh, that they haven't been before? I, I believe the Earth is a nursery where species such as ourselves get to a techno technological point as we are at the moment. We get helped or we, or we either survive or we don't. And then basically we leave and it starts all over again. Um, the, um, the evidence of that is uh, some mines across the world are finding similar things to mobile phones in rocks and in coal. That's the evidence of that, that it's happened all before. I've never seen any evidence of that, Wayne. Where did you yeah, see that? Yeah. There is uh, some Russian coal mines, there's some evidence. Um, but also, if you, th if you think about it, this is what we would do if we were a space-faring community. We would help other species through their turbulent times. And like, like I say, if they are going to come, it's over the next number of years because you know, and I'm sure deep down you understand, we will not make it through. Don't get me wrong, I believe there is an, um, a God which rules the whole universe, but I also believe in extraterrestrials, and one or the other is going to have to come to help us. For well, you, you took the question literally right out of my mouth. Uh, I don't have a problem with this as a religious believer. I believe that God is the God of the worlds, uh, all the worlds, and this is all God's creation. Uh, but does it pose uh, moral and religious questions from your standpoint? No, it doesn't, because I've also um, studied many religions, and I've come to the conclusion, uh, as I said before, for me, God is an intelligent entity which controls the whole universe, but the religions, the, the religions themselves have been, the book's example have been rewritten so many times, they have been bastardised and used to, as a controlling mechanism for humanity. Now, finally, uh, before I go to the news, have you ever seen any of these phenomena? I have, yes. Tell me. Um, you might laugh, but it's true for me. It's my truth. I have seen um, energy entities. I saw two, and that, that I was getting an emotional feeling from one of them was love. The other one was hate. One looked like a massive jellyfish. The other one looked like a massive centipede. Now, you laugh, but that's my truth. Well, you had me up to that point. Now I just think you're stark raving mad. But thanks, uh, Wayne, in Cheshire. You know, I had uh, that George Galloway back in here the other day. Well, I'll tell you what. Talk about the knowledge. By the time he got out, I had a first-class degree. Uh, someone sent me a picture of a, a hundred-year-old iPhone in the grave of a woman buried in a Russian Atlantis. It didn't convince me, I've got to say. Uh, now, Lee Cronin is not just the professor of chemistry at the University of Glasgow. He's working on a new tool to help humans find alien life in the universe. He is the uh, Regis professor, as I say, and his team have come up with the assembly theory which is a new way 
of quantifying molecular complexity, which can be used to determine if a molecule required a biological system to create it, or if it happened by chance. They're working with NASA to make new life detection instruments, which could be sent on missions into space to trace alien life. Now, he thinks that there is life on Mars, but that it will be boring. Amazing. He joins me now, Professor Lee Cronin, Professor of Chemistry at the University of Glasgow. That was a bit of a letdown. The good news is there's life on Mars. The bad news is it's boring. What do you mean, Professor? Hi, good evening. Pleasure to be with you. Okay, so I, I, Mars is very close to Earth, and it would seem that probably the Mars was very similar to Earth when it was... Um, when it was a different place, where it was more ha what we call habitable. So I was kind of making a flip comment. Of course, we could find life on Mars, any life or evidence of life would be amazing. The first question is, is, is there life on Mars? And if the life we find on Mars is similar to life we find on Earth, like made up of DNA and proteins and the same chemistry we find, and, uh, then that will be what I mean by boring, but not really. It, it well, still will be amazing. It will be amazing, uh, but I get your point. Uh, but but your detection system can find life that didn't require biology to create it. What do you mean by that dichotomy? So what I mean is, so if we go to Mars and we try and just look for Earth-like life, if we don't find Earth-like life, then we we might miss other life. What our approach does is to say, well, look, let's not go with any idea of what the life looks like. Um, so like biology on Earth, let's try and work out if we can be as open-minded as possible for alien biology. And so what our technique will do will allow you to find not only Earth life, but any life, um, no matter what the chemistry, because it only looks for the evidence of complexity. And so that, that's what, how we built the technique, and we verified the technique in the laboratory over the past few years, and uh, we're getting ready to kind of go further afield. Well, that's great news for the University of Glasgow that I represented uh, for quite a long time in Parliament. I'm very glad to hear that. Who are the customers for this? NASA? Anyone else? You're making it available to other uh, space-faring nations? China? Russia? So I think at the moment, I think um, the only... Uh, so it's, it's I've just published it in an open access journal, so anyone can look at it. Um, I'm working with NASA. They helped develop that uh, approach with me. And um, the nice thing for it is it, it, the customer isn't just looking, for, isn't just going to be uh, space um, faring nations. Actually, this approach can be used to discover new drugs as well in the laboratory and also make new life forms. So we're using this approach in the lab practically to fact, say, search for new antibiotics and new drugs. I could explain why I mean, it's a bit weird, but it actually works quite nicely. And we're going to go elsewhere. And I think the where I really want to go is to the outer solar system or to somewhere really quite strange like Venus um, to look for weird life in, 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 um, it, around us. I'm, a, I'm an interested uh, layman, amateur, uh, in this. But it seems to me a, a decently workable thesis uh, that Mars was once a planet, uh, perhaps quite like ours, uh, but that it died. Uh, a melancholy inference from that, 
is that that's what will happen to us. Am I widely off the mark there? Um, no, no, not really. We just don't. So Mars was a bit smaller. So Mars wasn't able to hang on for its atmosphere for as long. And so because Mars was smaller and um, it didn't have a magnetic field, the magnetic. So what happens on Earth? We've got this magnetic field that keeps our atmosphere with us. So that's why Earth has survived longer. So there's lots of reasons to expect and hope that the that, that Earth will go for much longer than, than Mars. It already has. But what's really exciting is Mars was habitable before Earth. So probably the chemistry for life on Earth got cooking on Mars, almost like the, the aperitif for life on Earth could have started on Mars and actually got got sent to Earth on a meteorite. And in fact, we're all Martians. And by one of the reasons why going to Mars to have a look is we found a new type of life form that's different to life on Earth, but related. We might find that we are actually the great grandchildren of life on Mars. But don't worry, we might survive longer because we can keep our atmosphere for longer, as long as we don't screw things up through global warming or nuclear disaster and other things like that. Indeed so. Uh, the sociology uh, lags behind your brilliant technology, that's for sure. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by your wish to go farther. Uh, it'll, of course, take a very long time to go to Venus. Uh, how realistic is it that uh, craft can, I mean, can you land on Venus? Yes, yeah, so actually, Venus is, is a lot closer. Venus is the cheap, one of the cheapest places to get to. But is it to land the? Now, I'm not entirely sure if my memory serves me correctly, but I believe that the the Russians landed two vehicles on on Venus um, um, in the about 30 or 40 years ago. So it is possible to land there, but they don't survive for very long. I think the US has already also been there. So going to Venus will be one option. But what's really exciting is to go to other places in the solar system where there is water and carbon like on Earth. And one such place is um, a Europa. And there's another place where I think is interesting called Titan. And, and actually in a few years, NASA is going to send a nuclear powered drone to Titan that has a special nose on it. And the nose that it has will you be able to use my technique so we might, within the next 10 years, be able to find weird life on Titan using this nuclear-powered drone with this, with this special nose. And, of course, you're talking about our solar system. Uh, there are uh, very many solar systems. Uh, could there be more than one universe? Well, <laughs> Um, I think so. Let's. I think there could be more than one, so many more than one habitable solar system in the universe, in our universe. I'm not sure about. Depends how you define the universe. But to kind of um, say one thing extra, the technique we've approached is very good if you can go and collect the molecules. But we have developed a new technique where you can basically use um, a, te a telescope to look for complex molecules from very long distances. So we might be even able to find complex molecules in other solar systems in our current universe um, in the next, next 20 or 30 years by extending this technique, because it works in a thing called the infrared where, um, very well. So I'm super excited about that. I'm pretty sure we will find life if it's out there. Um, we just have to go, we just have to be really open-minded when we go and look. Well. Uh I had Nick Pope, uh, the MOD uh, uh, specialist in UFOs. It could be that whilst we are so far vainly uh, trying to find them, they've already found us. Do, does your thought process intersect with that point in any way? 
Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, um, yes and no. I, there is life elsewhere in the universe. Is there any evidence that, that UFOs are visiting Earth right now? Not really. There are anomalies that people are excited about. But I think actually the UFO phenomena, um, it's a bit, I think we should pay attention to, not because there are UFOs visiting us, but how people will re react when they find, when we find life elsewhere in the universe. Culturally, this is going to be really powerful. So, and I think maybe the reason why people want to believe in UFOs is this, 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 this wish to know, are we alone in the universe? What are we doing here? What is life all about? And what, what is the future for life on Earth? So I don't want to ridicule those people who believe in UFOs, but it is a belief. There is no evidence. Um, well, uh, I don't know if you're aware because you're obviously in, uh, deeply immersed in your own work, but President Obama made some comments uh, recently, and there is a report going to Congress at the end of June, uh, which will apparently reveal either the existence of phenomena mind-bending in its uh, sophistication. Uh, Marco Rubio, the senator, uh, is hoping that it's extraterrestrial, because if it isn't, it means that Russia and China have got some uh, pretty spectacular kit uh, out there. Uh, it is becoming a bit more mainstream, Professor. No, no. So I, I'll tell you what's going on. I'm aware of all this work very well. The US Navy and the Pentagon want a little bit of publicity for funding. Okay. Um, the anomalies we have seen are advanced um, image anomalies that can be explained with a little bit of critical thinking, looking at flaring on the surface of the CCD. Believe me, I'm the first to be there and want to find aliens. Just think critically for a second. If aliens have advanced technology and they're able to fly to us, why have we not seen any more information? Why is it just the US Navy? Um, let's think a bit more. Why is it the quality of the photographs and the information we're seeing not improving? And so I think what Obama is going to say and the Pentagon say is there are really interesting anomalies we're picking up um, with our equipment right now. Let's have a look and update it. That is not the same thing as saying they're UFOs. I think my, I try to be as humble as possible about this, about the possibility. Of course, aliens could be visiting us. Have we seen any compelling evidence? No. Um, but that doesn't mean that the US State Department, the, the Pentagon and so on, are not going to release some very interesting information. But I, I wouldn't necessarily have a wager with you, but I'm pretty sure that it's going to be very exciting um, to look at the anomalies, but they are nevertheless... Um, anomalies in uh, uh, in our atmosphere, and and whether and Russia and China do have sophisticated tech, so do the US, so do other places. But you know, um, I'm also going to be very interested to see what is declassified because they've really pumped us all up, haven't they? Well, they pumped me up. Let, uh, let's uh, talk again, perhaps after the report comes out. And the very Absolutely. best of luck with your. Uh, I was going to say groundbreaking work, but it's far more than that. It is cosmically uh, important. Professor, proud of you. Lee Cronin, Professor of Chemistry at the University of Glasgow. Thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Let's take a call. Go ahead, Kenny. Hi, George. Yeah, I just want to talk about the trans issue that you were speaking about earlier. Yeah, I've got go a ahead. book in front of me. 
by uh, Douglas Murray. And he's got a paragraph here that I'd just like to read out if that's okay. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Okay. I was standing on the corner <laughs> at a quarter. All right, get him off, get him off. He's a nutter. He's a nutter. In the UK, it's 08081965522. And in the US, it's plus one. Eight four four nine four four double three double four. Go to São Paulo in Brazil, where Samuel awaits. Samuel, welcome. Uh, hi, George. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Uh, uh, I'd like to to start just agree with what you just said. I think this UFO thing now, regardless of the intention, uh, can have only two consequences distract us from this crisis that we live in now that's the biggest transfer of wealth to ever fewer hands and to funnel more resources especially to the military justified by this UFO thing which in the end gets more money to the same hands I think instead of looking to the sky now, especially from a socialist point of view, I think it's time for us to reach out to each other, to the working class, physically reach out to each other and start um, determining the, the, the tone of the dialogue about people instead of just commenting on what Biden said about Putin or what Xi Jinping think, identifying every of these leaders with their people. I think so the American working class, the British working class, the Cuban working class, uh, the Russian working class, the Iranian working class, the Palestinian working class, start reach out to each other and establish and create the, uh, even events, you would say, these peace treaties and commitments. Because the working class is the only actor only capable of stopping every single war. The working class is the one who builds the bombs, the one who receives it in their heads. Okay, the uh, one who... I think I've got you. Uh, uh, not everyone is a socialist, of course, uh, and it's possible that you can have your feet in the gutter and your uh, eyes looking up at the stars, to paraphrase the great Oscar Wilde. Uh, it's possible that you can do both. I'm in favor of space exploration and I'm in favor of inoculating the world against malaria and wiping it out, which we can do for a mere fraction of what we spend on armaments. It's possible that we can uh, chew gum and walk at the same time. Besides, uh, the the development of science, as uh, the Professor Cronin just pointed out, that is uh, applicable in space can also make new antibiotics uh, here on Earth and uh, cure uh, sickness and disease here. Uh, so thanks. So let him uh, research it. Yeah. Okay. Last word to you. Go on. Let uh, so, let, of course, I, I'm an infectious disease specialist. I'm not against any research. Just saying that this theme is, from a social point of view, from an anti-war point of view, I think it works more as a distraction than any, any other thing. And it's more justifying 
the more expenditure in this thing, just like this 10 billion bailout the U U.S. Senate is about to give to Jeff Bezos, basically covering his $9 billion he used to buy uh, Warner Brothers. So well, I think we must, we can look everywhere, but if we don't start looking to each other, we, our, even our idea of our expectations as uh, the human gender is getting poorer and poorer and mediocre by the day. Pat, South Carolina, welcome. Go ahead. Yes, I saw UFO in the 1970s, middle 1970s, and I was living in Meridian, Mississippi at the time. Uh, I got a phone call. I was in the house. Somebody said, go up, told, told me to go look in the sky. So I went outside, and it was just before dark. I went out there, and there was this massive, and when I say massive, the person who called me was miles away from me. And it appeared as big to them as it did to me. And I'm looking at it, and, and it looked like it was just spinning right above, you know, above the trees, but I couldn't tell how high above the trees. It was so big. It was just, it seemed like it was what above shape, the trees. What shape was it, Pat? Well, the thing about it, it was iridescent, as if it were spinning so fast, that, but there was a light. There were light. It, the, there was a light created. It was like an iridescent light and it was you couldn't see a solid form it was just an iridescent light I see. but george we're looking at it cars are stopped people are getting out of their cars there are people who saw this other than me okay they were all standing there my children were with me we're looking up at this and then all of a sudden see the naval air station is in meridian meridian naval air station and then these two jets go flying by uh, towards each other, nose to, you know, toward, heading towards each other. And this was in, I guess what you'd say, maybe heading towards this thing that we were looking at. And we're still looking at, because we're mesmerized and it right in front of my eyes, I'm telling you, George, this is not an exaggeration. As fast as you can blink or, or through two to three seconds, or maybe that was too long, it went in front of my eyes up and turned into a, what looked like a star way up in the sky. It was it looked exactly like a star, kind of glittering a little, but but not as not as so it disappeared. Different than it, a star, it, it, it had a it dullness. Dis it disappeared from your view upwards and extraordinarily quickly. Yeah, I'm. Um, I'm so fast. I mean, it was like as fast as you can blink almost. As those jets were heading right to it, and it was gone. It was gone. It was not in the paper the next day. It was not in the news, on the news report at night. It was not on the radio, and my husband at the time was working at the radio station. Nothing. There was nothing, not a word. And not too long before that, and I only remember this because of the coincidence. There were two men who lived in Pascagoula, or they were fishing. I don't know if they lived there. I just know they were fishing and claimed they had been taken board an air, uh, a spaceship, right, and had been analyzed or studied or whatever. I don't remember the details because I wasn't paying a lot of attention at the time, but everybody thought this is cuckoo. But the, the story was continuing, and then it just suddenly just uh, dropped. And I've often wondered what you know what happened with that story but it wasn't that long 
before what we saw that day. And I'm telling you, there were people there in the street with me, cars stopped, looking. There are people who know they saw what I saw. And miles away, so I don't know how many other people might have seen it, you know, I got a phone call from someone miles away, go look up in the sky. And it, and I talked with them afterwards, and it appeared as large to them where they were. I'm talking about miles away. I'm, when I say miles, I mean 15, 20. Uh, yeah, it appeared as large to them as it did to us. Well, that is fascinating. So, Pat, that was thank it. you uh, very much for that eyewitness uh, testimony. Uh, let's go to Simon in Preston on UFOs. Go ahead, Simon. About UFOs, I'm, I'm just ringing to give my uh, my two pennies on um, on intelligent life in the universe. Yeah, go um, ahead. So yeah, me, I, you're right. I, I I shouldn't have put it the way I did. Go ahead. No, the, no, no. It's fine. So my uh, view is uh, uh, very much from a scientific point of view that you know it's never aliens until it's aliens, and the old adage of extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof and. Certainly to my mind and all the evidence that I've seen, there is absolutely no evidence to date that any of the um, so-called sightings of alien life and alien transport um, are anything more than just, um, um, as the scientist had on before uh, was saying, that are just um, um, digital remnants, you know, that are on a camera screen. You know, you very often hear them saying, oh, it's moving it, it's moving it hundreds of thousands, well, I say thousands of miles an hour, and I can see it on my screen, but there's no radar contact. What's because it just doesn't actually exist. That's why there's no radar contact. Well, it could be, but it could be being covered up. Isn't that the point, Simon? And isn't that what we're beginning to see break down now in the United States? Uh, Because according to Obama, uh, there were lots, uh, there is lots of evidence of extraordinary things, unexplained things, but they just don't release that to the public for obvious reasons. Yeah, there's lots of things in the world. People people do things, don't they, that, you know, they, you, know you say, why on earth would they have done that? You know, it's, it's completely unexplainable. Don't mean to say it didn't happen or that it did. It's just, you know, the... You know, these things are just, a lot of them are just as fanciful. Anyway, what I was going to say as well was a little bit more is that um, in terms of um, the distance to, you know, other stars where there, where there are potentially other planets around, within 100 light years of the Earth, there is only 800 stars. So there's not necessarily going to be that many planets. And if you imagine that we've been transmitting at the very most electronic signals for 100 years, then... It can't have got more than um, it can't have got further than those 800 stars what we've transmitted, and likewise, signals can't have got to us from. Well, that um, depends. Our, our electronic signals might be much weaker than uh, any extraterrestrial life. Oh, that's irrelevant. The fastest that you can, the fastest that anything can travel, is the speed of light. Uh, and electronic signals, well, electronic signals that's travel. That's if you're a human on Earth. As if you're a human on no, Earth. No, no, it's a human uh, in the universe. But, but, uh, that's the point that uh, was being made by Pope, uh, that you have to imagine a new physics. Uh, if, yeah, but you'll only if, get new if, physics if, in the new universe. Well, you, and there is, there's and there is more, actually science there behind that. There are more that things in the heaven and Earth. 
than are dreamt of in your philosophy, Horatio. Uh, you mustn't imagine <laughs> that life has to look like us, even going back to Professor Cronin, that life is formed uh, biologically at all. Uh, I'm absolutely sure that it doesn't look like us, George, but I'm absolutely sure that it conforms to the rules of physics in our universe. Well, the, the rules as defined by us from here no, no, in no, our no, universe, we, no, no, these, the uh, these, these, the craft, the these craft can be coming from not, uh, not uh, uh, even necessarily in our solar system. They can be coming from distant solar systems. Where oh, a different physics, <laughs> where a different physics may exist. No, 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 no. There's no other physics than what the physics we know in the universe. That's what makes it. There, that there is are a things terribly. There are things about physics Orientalist. that we don't yet understand, such as dark matter and dark energy. Quite dark matter, dark physics. energy, black holes. Uh, these are all potentially uh, game-changing, script-changing. Physics changing uh, phenomena. They are, but there's no evidence for them at the moment for for translating that into the absence alien. of evidence is not evidence of absence. Uh, no, Simon. but in order, to, but but going back to my previous point, that extraordinary claims require sure. extraordinary evidence. Sure, sure. I mean, I could make any claim. It doesn't mean to say that it's true. No, that's that's obviously the case. But I. Uh, like to employ uh, a certain logical test and it's this what would be the reason for all of this universe to exist but only one really rather insignificant planet to have ever had any form of life on it that sounds that sounds illogical to I me. I absolutely agree with you, George. And I really, it. I really, really want it to be aliens. But until it's aliens, it's not aliens. Okay. In actual fact, I don't know if you've seen the film Contact, actually, because there you said the same line that you've just made, and it was amazing. It is an awful waste of space if, if we are all if that there is. If we're all that there is. Exactly. Thanks, Simon. I've enjoyed that uh, call. Michael is the last caller. Maybe, no, we might get another one in. Michael in Minneapolis uh, on Bernie Sanders and U.S. politics. Go ahead, Michael. Hey, George. How are you doing today? Good. I've enjoyed the show. I hope you have. Absolutely. So I just want to talk about sort of where the Democratic Party is, is and what they're doing right now. So, you know, during when Joe uh, Biden passed the COVID relief bill, um, he abandoned several campaign promises and with no opposition from, you know, the progressives in Congress, Bernie or the squad. He refused to put in a $15 minimum wage, which, as you remember, in that last one to one debate la back in March with Joe Biden, um, Joe Biden absolutely unequivocally promised he would go to the mat for a $15 minimum wage. Well, that didn't happen. We didn't get any rent or mortgage relief. We didn't get any sort of expanded stimulus. We didn't get anything really for small business owners. And then this past week, um, they debated on a bill to increase capital uh, police budget by nearly $2 billion, with a B, dollars. 
And you've got to remember, you know, after George Floyd and everything and all the protests of last summer, the squad was banging the drum for, you know, defund the police. They need to, you know, reform the police. And we can't put so much money into it. And, you know, they were that was a huge thing that they were very focused on um, and that the progressive young base of this country that was out in the streets marching was focused on. And this past week, when it came, though, to vote for themselves, so they're talking about defunding the police for other people, but when it came to themselves, um, three of them, you know, it was a party-line vote. Perhaps they just want to get re-elected, Michael. Uh, (laughs) Anyone uh, who would be found to have actually defunded the police uh, would be electoral... uh, electorally radioactive. Well, that's one thing, George, but we're talking about the Capitol Police. So this is just in Washington, D.C. So three members of the squad voted no, which is what they had said they would do. But then three of them, including Jamal Bowman and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib, all voted present. So their rhetoric has been, let's, you know, defund the police. But when it came to themselves... Uh, they voted for a $2 billion increase to the Capitol Police that's just in Washington, D.C. $2 will billion also make for one police force. For one police force. X- and $2 billion the, extra. Yeah, $2 billion additional funding, wow. which is going to make the Capitol less accessible um, to the general public and also increases sort of the surveillance state's um, you know, uh, oversight into it. And it's just unbelievable hypocrisy for them. It, it passed George by one vote, 213 to 212. Wow. So if any of the three had voted against it, it would have gone down. And, you know, I don't think, yes, the Capitol Police, should they stop people from rioting the Capitol? Sure, but that wasn't the issue. The issue wasn't that there weren't enough police. The issue was that they weren't, you know, they weren't tossed into action because, frankly, Donald Trump wasn't that upset about the Capitol, you know, protest, riot. So they don't need any more money, but it just it's just the hypocrisy is just this. And, you know, at the same time, they're not taking a stand for anything. I guess that's why I'm so worked up and frustrated is because America's falling apart. We desperately need all that kind of COVID relief that we just haven't gotten. And what they're focused on is let's increase money for the Capitol Police Force. And they're talking about how they want to investigate the Capitol riots on the 6th, like it's the most important thing that ever happened. Yeah, You've it was, a, it was, a, it a was a, an insurrection, don't you know? Michael, thank you very much indeed <laughs> yeah. for that call. Samuel is in New York. Go ahead, Samuel. Hello, George. It's an honor to speak to you. I, I started first hearing you at, on WBAI here in New York. And that was also many, called week. the mother of all talk shows. Well remembered. Yes. And uh, I've been a, 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 follower, a follower ever since. I, I also was listening to um, your speech and a couple of your speeches at the Oxford Union. The oh, one yeah. that the one that said where that's on YouTube, uh, uh, the, where the, the, the excuse me, student asks you, "Are you a racist?" And then you you give him a great answer. Yeah. You you said that you would never debate uh, a supporter of Israeli of apartheid. Yeah. How how does that relate in your mind to what we've just seen the, the horrible incidents uh, in, in in Gaza today uh, recently well uh, I I discuss with Israelis all the time in fact uh, Gideon Levy 
whom I call the greatest living Israeli, uh, is a, a regular guest on the show, a journalist from Haaretz who supports justice and humanity in Israel. But having been an activist in the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa, if you'd asked me back when Mandela was in jail and apartheid was standing on the necks of the majority population in South Africa, to have a gentlemanly, scholarly, a student union debate with a supporter of that system, I would have refused. And if that's so, how can I justify a scholarly student debate with a supporter of apartheid in Israel-Palestine? I can't. Um, but that's not to say I don't talk to Israelis. I do all the time. Some of my best friends, as they say, are Israelis. But they're not supporters of what is happening to the Palestinian people. That's the difference, Sam. Yes. I really, really appreciate your answer, uh, George. And uh, I uh, just hope that I could follow in your footsteps in the future. God bless you. Thank you for the call. Uh, Gerard in Kilwinning is definitely the, the last call. Gerard, go ahead. Yes, George. Listen, if you want another job, the Celtic manager job's still going. So, uh, have they you know, got an Australian guy for that? Oh God, I, I don't know, George. Apparently, he's some guy who's worked in Japan and Australia. I've um, never heard of him. I, I must say, I've never heard of him. But um, I'm not, I'm, big, I'm I'm not the, big on Australian coaches working in Japan. But it doesn't yeah, fill me. Doesn't fill me with great <laughs> excitement, Gerard. Maybe we should have Keir Starmer's job, uh, George. I don't think he could do much worse for Celtic as he's doing for Labour. You well, know, I, the way it's I going. wouldn't wish uh, that on any football team, certainly not Celtic. Uh, <laughs> no, but that not? It, it is a terrible mess, Labour and Celtic. It really is, George. And the thing about Starmer, look, I'm not going to hold him responsible for everything. This goes back, you, you mentioned touched on the rack, you go all the way back to there when Guys like you and the late great Robin Cook stood up and said no to this uh, monstrosity that took place. But you go back to even Jeremy Corbyn. From the day he got in the door, the Blairites, the right-wingers, were campaigning against him. Oh, they were yeah. trying to stab him in the back immediately. And the country saw this, and the people saw this, and they thought, wait a minute, if you're not even going to stand by your own leader, who the party, the people of your party elected, why in God's name are you going to stand up for us? They don't trust the Labour Party. No, and they don't see this, George. The Labour elites don't understand that the way they treated Jeremy Corbyn is going to haunt them for a long time to come. Yes, that's right. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, of course, himself also made many mistakes. But it is oh, yeah. important to remember that notwithstanding two whole years of insurrection against their own leader, Corbyn got the best Labour vote, the biggest increase in the Labour vote since 1945 at the general yep. election in 2017. Corbyn, but for less than three and a half thousand votes, would have been the Prime Minister of Britain. Exactly, and he was actually the antithesis of Tony Blair and your David Miliband's and your uh, Mandelson's and all these other characters who, you know, when Labour, they, they just used Labour for their own agenda. They're anti-Labour. They're anti-Labour. Exactly. Starmer must go. The Australian coach. Well, <laughs> I don't know what to say. I, I don't, don't want to be but disloyal. I've got a... Hail, hail, anyway. 
Thanks, Hill Health, to you, Gerard, in Kilwinning, in Ayrshire, in Scotland. Only one Scottish call today. Time was when all the calls were Scottish, but we have toured the American continent from Brazil to Canada. And it's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you, and if it was, come back next week at the same time, same place, for the mother of all talk shows. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.